In my research, I found out there were no laws in our country to stop human trafficking. It was a free-for-all on the kids. That infuriated me. So I announced to my husband that I was going to run for office. Welcome to Luma and Bloom, the podcast that empowers and enlightens. My name is Nick. And my name's Kate. And together, our goal is to shine a light on the dark conversations. On today's episode, join us as we get an inside exclusive on the earlier years of Joy Smith, former parliamentarian. She is also the founder of the Joy Smith Foundation, Canada's leading authority on the prevention and intervention of human trafficking. We hope you enjoy. Bloom and Bloom is brought to you by the Joy Smith Foundation. All right. So we are here today with one of my personal heroes, probably one of my favorite people in the world, Joy Smith. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. And she is the reason why both of us are here. You for different reasons, because she happens to be family. Yeah. But I'm here because I really love working with her and being part of what she's doing. So the reason why we wanted to have her on our podcast is because she's a very influential person and we kind of want to have the opportunity to give people more of a glimpse into who she is as a person aside from all the incredible work that she's done in regards to human trafficking and her political career, which I'm sure she probably doesn't necessarily want to relive, but. So many people will know you as Joy Smith, but I have a different relationship with you. You do. Joy Smith, otherwise known as my grandmother. Yes, absolutely. And so, yeah, I think today we just really wanted to have the opportunity to get to know you a little bit better. The person behind Joy Smith, you're a mom, you're a grandmother, and I think it would just be really nice to to have a... Delve a little deeper. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Into what makes you you. Well, I don't think a lot of people understand what a dynamic person you are, because most people only get to see the Joy Smith foundation side of Joy Smith and the politician. But because Katie has a different relationship with you, it kind of gives us a little bit of a segue in <laughs> to get to ask you a f some different questions. Yeah. So. so let's take it all the way back, back to the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> That's a way back. <laughs> Oh, it's not that long ago. We won't say how many years. No, none of that. <laughs> but I think something that I would like to start out with is you grew up on a farm. Absolutely, I did. Uh, we were very poor, and my dad was a Second World War veteran. He was wounded. And so uh, we moved out to the farm. My grandma and grandpa lived on the farm with us in their little cottage. And that was such a rich, wonderful experience. I remember sitting on the porch and having 
air root cookies, which was a real treat because mom and dad couldn't afford to buy those, but grandma and grandpa bought them and we had that treat. <laughs> so yeah, it was um, it was a, a, a wonderful experience to be able to grow up and farm and learn how to garden. And I often tell people if you ever marooned on an island, I'm the one to be with because I know how to shoot a 22. <laughs> and um, I did not know. And I know uh, yes, and I know how to garden. <laughs> Um, so, you know, gardening to this day is something I love to do. I get out and dig in the dirt and feel so good. So growing up, how many brothers and sisters did you have? I had, um, five brothers and sisters. My oldest brother drowned accidentally because there used to be these old dugouts on the farm. And when dad was overseas, uh, my mother moved in with my grandma and grandpa, who also were on a farm. And my grandma and grandpa had a dugout close to the house. And unfortunately, when he was a very small boy, he ran toward it. And they couldn't catch him fast enough. He jumped in, and it was the spring of the year. And my mother jumped in after. And um, they often tell the story of how they got them both out. But uh, my brother didn't survive. He was just a little boy. And so when I think about, you know, hearing how people long ago on their farms had to do so much and put up with so much, mm -hmm. it was uh, an education in itself. Yeah. Were you close with your siblings growing up? Oh, very much. Yeah. Very much. My mom died at 49. She was very young. And so um, we became very close, my sisters and I in particularly. Uh, particularly close because we had to grow up the three little ones. Mm. And so um, you learned responsibility and you learned how to make sure there was food on the table, even if you had to grow it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, these hard times make you, make you stronger. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, it sounds like from a very early age, you had to develop that strong nurturing and protecting presence that you oh yes my oldest sister and I uh, my three sisters um, well there was the youngest sister Eve and then um, who has passed away and uh, my sister uh, May and Gay are my best friends we have a history that uh, you know it's when you're alone and there's nobody else to turn to uh, you you learn how to do things mm -hmm. that you didn't think you ever could do. And we became very protective of each other. Mm -hmm. And um, my mother always said education is our greatest weapon. <laughs> and to get out of poverty, you need to get a good education. So um, I took her word for it and got lots of degrees and worked very hard, mm -hmm. <laughs> several degrees. And... Um, Worked very hard. It took me 13 years to pay off the bill, but <laughs> I managed to do it. Well, and now we use that saying all the time as yeah. education is our greatest weapon. It truly is. So how amazing Kate. is that? I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't know that's where that came from. Yeah. I didn't either. Like, I feel I'm just I feel very privileged to be able to have this conversation because I am just hanging on every word. Like, there's these are things that I obviously didn't know about you, but it's definitely so insightful in in understanding like where some of your passion comes from mm -hmm. well you know life doesn't always give uh people the biggest breaks 
So it's what you make of it. And there were many scary times. And as young girls, all we knew is we loved each other and had to make sure that we went to school, mm-hmm. made the lunches, and made sure that there was food on the table. And that sounds very basic, but it's not really. People today are doing the very same thing in different ways. Mm-hmm. So I think that helps to build you in, in a way that um, I wouldn't want most to experience, most people to experience. But it does, and it forges an understanding and a loyalty to your siblings in a way that is indescribable, really, mm-hmm. because they were your responsibility in many respects. So were you then the oldest after your brother passed away? No. My oldest was my sister, May. I was uh, the middle child. The middle child. You know. (laughs) And uh, that's trouble sometimes. Yeah. You're a middle child. That's that's right. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) So, and the rest of them. But, you know, I remember as a young child, before my mother died, my my father was um, a World War II veteran. He was wounded during that war, as I said, and um, and he was in Deer Lodge Hospital, which is a veterans hospital here in Winnipeg. He had different operations, a lot of stomach trouble, and I remember when my mom had to go to see him. She wanted to go to see him. You know, they were close as a couple, and and we were out on the farm. And I tell you, even in those times. And one particular time, I had my 14th birthday, and we had nothing. Mom was in Winnipeg and was dad, and dad wasn't there. It was just my sisters and my brother and I. And, and being in the country, far away from the nearest neighbor or the nearest store, was an experience. But we had a store. We lived in a place called Wakapaw. And then we had a store that we could see from our house, even though it was two miles away. And I remember my little brother, who was so young, mom had left us just a little bit of money if we needed something to go to the store. And my birthday was in February, so it was really snowy and blowy. And I remember Grant uh, taking that money because he wanted to go to the store and get me something for my birthday. And if you've heard about jawbreakers, they used to be the (laughs) thing. So anyway, uh, May made a chocolate cake and I helped to ice it. And we looked out the window, we had a pair of old binoculars. We watched him go all the way across the field with the snow blowing. And I was thinking, boy, these jawbreakers aren't gonna be worth it. But he so (laughs) wanted to do it. (laughs) <laughs> so we watched and we watched and we watched and finally he started back again with his little bag of candy and that was my birthday present that was my 14th birthday Aww. so you know nobody can replicate that because it wasn't a fancy restaurant it wasn't a big gift but the greatest gift there was the love um, that my siblings we had for each other and that I'm little tiny cry. boy. I just that's so sweet. Yeah, it really happened. Oh yeah. that must have made such an impression on you because you still remember it today. Oh yes, I it's as clear as day. I remember looking out the window and May and I just standing there waiting for Grant to get back. 
And I kept saying, are you sure we should have sent him to the store? (laughs) (laughs) And um, I just prayed he'd get back safely, and he did. But he seemed so small Mm -hmm. on that big field with the snow blowing. And he was determined he was going to get those jawbreakers. (laughs) So that was a beautiful memory in many ways. That That is is really special. Yeah. Very. Yeah. Um, In terms of being on the farm, do you have any special memories with you and your parents? I love the farm, Mm -hmm. but my summer holidays were weeding garden. Mm. And so I didn't like summer holidays. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was just so glad to get back to school. And at that time, it was work, work, work. But, you know, I learned how to can And I remember once when my dad was away, I really appreciate who my mother was in so many ways because once when dad was away, uh, a lot of people don't know what it's like to have chickens in their yard, but we had a chicken and a chicken coop. Some do. I know you do, Nicole. (laughs) But they they sort of gather in a big pile if they get scared. They um, so they gathered in a big pile and smothered each other. And I remember mom coming up to the bedroom in the middle of the night saying, girls, the chickens have uh, been scared by some fox, uh, some foxes, and we need to uh, eviscerate them. Now, for those that don't know what eviscerate means, (laughs) that means that you plunge them into hot water, you take off the feathers, and then you cut them open to take out everything that is required. And then you clean them in cold water, and then you freeze them. And that's exactly what we did in the middle of the night. Oh, wow. And so I was <laughs> I remember thinking, put your chickens at night. <laughs> I know it was the middle of the night, and, and it's not the most pleasant smell. No, no. And uh, feathers all over the place, but we did it. And I felt pride in knowing that we have food for the winter. Mm. And we got to the chickens fast enough that they were still good. We could you know, have that meat. But my mother, when I think of her, she's got five kids in the house and and dad's away. And she uh, found the chickens that were piling in the corner and she made a decision and she got us all up and we worked to get that done. And it took us until the latter part of the afternoon the following day. But we did it. And you know, there was a sense of You know, we did it together, and we had the food, and there were some winters when our food was very scarce, so it was kind of nice to know that we had that in the freezer and we could take it out and cook it. Mm -hmm. Wow. Your your mom had a lot of tenacity. Oh, yeah. She truly did. Wow. Yeah. That is very eye-opening. You know, there's so many things. It just makes me think of there's so many things now that we take for granted. And that's why I believe in the power of storytelling because there are things that even my generation forgets that is a privilege Mm -hmm. now that Mm -hmm. you weren't necessarily granted when you were growing up. No, and you look at it differently when mom was alive and dad, like on the farm, we had eggs and we had cream because we had a creamer. And so you, you, you saved the cream and you took it to the town and you sold the cream and you sold the eggs. And there were some times when 
we stayed home and we did the laundry and we always were going to surprise mom and dad with a clean house. And so- I wish my kids would do that. <laughs> we felt that that was a fun thing to do because we knew that dad and mom would bring back Koopa saw sausage and, <laughs> and cheese. And that was a real, and rye bread. And that was a real treat. We never got that. We never had the money, but when they sold the cream and the eggs, we were able to have that treat. But then there's other things too, you know, when you talk about um, growing up as a person, I remember, you know, we didn't have much money at all. And um, I remember as I got older, um, people from our hometown would say, hey, can the girls come and babysit on Saturday afternoon? And I remember dad um, driving to Killarney because he had to, it was the middle of winter and he had to get some groceries. And, and so part of it was the baby bonus we used to get. It was called the baby bonus. So when the baby bonus came, dad would go and this one time he said, Joy, would you come with me? Because he knew I had a babysitting job if I could make it to Killarney. It was the baker's children because they baked and it was a very busy time for them on a Saturday. And they had the cutest little kids. I just loved them. So anyway, um, my dad ran out of gas. He didn't have enough gas in the car to get to Killarney. So we went to the farmhouse. He got some gas and he said, I'll pay you back when I when I come back from Clarney and he was a man of his word. So we went to Clarney, I babysat, he did the grocery shopping and the other business he had. We got the car full of gas and we headed back with the jerry can with gas for the farmer. And uh, that babysitting money went for that gas because there wasn't enough money to go around. And I was just pleased to contribute. And we didn't know any differently, mm -hmm. you know? We didn't know that maybe you should keep your money and buy something, because we lived on a farm and our life was our life and the family unit was the most important thing. Wow. I have to say, this is so special getting to hear these Very. stories, because these are stories I've never even heard. And so, this well, is I guess they've never come up, have they? Yeah. Nobody well, asked me. Well, and I think, too, like, you know, even for our listeners, there's so much wealth of richness in, in how, like, you used to do family. And, mm -hmm. you know, like, there's so much to learn from that. And I think it's it's almost a lost art in some ways. Like, we we do family from a place of convenience now and that's really not how it's supposed to be it should be more you know like when i hear those stories i'm like oh my goodness like i wish my my kids were more like that but it has a lot to do with the fact that i've probably made a few mistakes as a parent not fostering that type of you know mentality with my kids so it's just really beautiful Mm -hmm. to hear like it's very but you special. know it's a different age now yes and i think history uh being told um you know uh, coming to this interview i thought well it's kind of boring for everybody to listen no. to all these little stories <laughs> but um you know it's you're growing up and what you go through is the fabric of who you are and it wasn't always good either you know like it's uh you have a lot of fear, you know. I mean, a 14-year-old laying in bed at night wondering, how am I going to get enough food 
for the end of the week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, what do we do? Yeah. But I learned how to peel potatoes and I, I can cook. I mean, I love cooking. And you just learn to make do. A box of macaroni and cheese will last a long time. <laughs> and if you add a little, some hot dogs in it or some chicken, it's a treat. And so you think, you know, I'm just grateful. And you learn to do other things like play games and I'm pretty good at crokinole. <laughs> <laughs> and right now I think a lot of kids will say crokinole. Ah. No, I, miss, I remember playing crokinole with my grandpa. Mm. And I haven't played in so long, but it's it's my kids love it. Like they don't actually play it; they just like flicking those canips splat. That's whoa, what we whoa. call it. Yeah. Well, you know, um, a lot of games and things like that. Like we didn't have anything. We had enough kids that we played a lot of baseball. So we come home at night and we'd play baseball till it got dark. And there's seven that you need actually, but we had. We had five, so we made up for the missing parts. (laughs) And playing baseball allowed me to become part of the provincial team when I was in um, uh, high school. Did you know this? I did not know you played baseball. Yeah, I can catch a ball, and I was center field. And we had tryouts, and I got on the provincial team to represent our school. Is there anything that you haven't done? <laughs> oh, yeah. Probably. Lots of things. But she can do everything. I was a terrible batter. Everyone groaned when I went up to bat. I couldn't hit a ball far enough to do anything, but I could catch them. I could catch the flies and I could throw. So you have your own little niche, right? Mm-hmm. And I could run. They often use me to, to run. Like, I really knew how to run. Like to run bases for somebody else. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Sometimes they allowed it. Sometimes they didn't. I did not know that about her. Yeah. I'm learning so much. This is just so great. That's because it's so long ago. These things no, don't happen I lo- anymore. You know I love it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I think it's a real, you know, as we get further into your story, we'll uncover more. But just even from my perspective, sitting here and knowing you the way you are I mean in the line of work that we do when it comes to working with survivors Mm -hmm. you almost become a mother figure to them or Mm -hmm. a sister figure or you know whatever else and just hearing how close you were with your siblings oh very close it makes sense because you take on this motherly role so easily with with the survivors that we work with and just that mothering nature that you have I think just from hearing you talk you've always had that quality in you even with your siblings you know taking care of them and making sure that there was enough food to eat donating your babysitting money to make sure that there was food or gasoline it's just you've always had that in you well there it was just necessity yeah you know, if it's not there, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. You know, and many people have stories like that, not just me, but I was a bit of a daredevil when I was a little kid, too. Um, <laughs> I want to hear these stories. My yeah. sister May was the most um, wise person in the whole world. She always had very strong intelligence and, and very, she was very understated, very quiet. 
But uh, I remember Charlie Baldock, one of our friends, the Baldocks brought their horses to school. That's how old I am. I'm 76. So they had a barn where they brought the horses to school, for goodness sake. And they would bring these two, Charlie and his brother, Jimmy, and they would bring the horses there. And there was a little game. And if the teacher was busy, they'd bring one of the horses out and they'd dare people to run between the legs of the horse. The horse would be standing still and to see how brave you were, you had to run between the four legs and hope the, the horse didn't kick you. So I unwisely was first in line to prove that I could go underneath this horse and faster than anybody else. And I remember my sister May saying, are you stupid? Why would you do that? You know, you could get killed. And I thought, now that's an unkind thing to say. I mean, nobody ever got <laughs> killed with going under the belly of a horse, but I found out later that that's not always the case. Oh. But, you know, when you look at things, and yet I, I live by example by my siblings too. My sister Gay, who was so smart, won every award going in nursing. And... And, you know, May, who was so wise, and everybody sort of looked to her for her wisdom. And she, she and Gay were big influences, and to this day are big influences on my life. Uh, Gay lived a different life than May and I did because we were older than Gay. And my sister always reminds me she's the younger sister. Yeah. And that's true, she is. <laughs> But, you know, those, those years, like in a person's life, years change because situations change so quickly. And you can go from one aspect to be another. But we always took very pride in getting a lot of pride in getting high marks in school. And we did. Mm -hmm. We got really good marks in school. And I particularly like music. So, you know, those Saturdays when we had the eggs and cream that were going to the creamery in Killarney? Well, we all also had a music teacher, Miss Forsyth, and she was a single lady who was a great music teacher, but dad and mom would sacrifice and give us each a quarter so we could have music lessons. So I made a deal with the rest of my siblings. If they gave me their quarters, I would take the long music lessons because I really enjoyed them. <laughs> And the others did not. Very clever. Yeah. You are so clever. <laughs> so anyway, that was kind of negotiate. That's where I learned how to negotiate. <laughs> how so, old were you? Um, 12, wow. 13, oh, yeah. That makes me think of my daughter. I'm yeah. impressed. Yeah. Yeah. It's negotiation. <laughs> yeah. You need to learn how to negotiate. I negotiated their money out of them, but they figured they were free. They didn't have to take music <laughs> lessons. And, of course, my grandmother, who lived in our yard, was a very good musician. She was. Um, she used to play the church organ in her day. She was this Irish woman who just loved to play the hymns and loved to do all those things, but she taught me how to play the piano. Mm. So I know every Irish song you can imagine. Name one, I'll play it on the piano, because she taught me. And the love of music and enjoyment... I mean, that was fun. And then at a moment's notice, if someone was in the house, they'd come around and everyone would burst into song. And one thing I remember about my dad, 
He had some shortcomings, that's for sure. He was a hard man, but he had one of the most beautiful singing voices I've ever heard in my life. And the greatest pride I had is when he came to the Christmas concert in Wakapal, one-room schoolhouse. Their grades, uh, we didn't have kindergarten. It was grade one to eight. And I would play the piano and my dad would lead all the, the new songs, you know, and teach the kids. And I was so proud. And everybody would stop when my dad would say, I'll sing you this piece and you mimic after me. And he had a beautiful voice. And I had to learn the piano real fast because I had to learn all these Christmas songs, you know, because there was no, there was a piano there, but no one could play it. So, you know, it's just interesting what you have to do. And that's another have to. <laughs> so would you, would you say though, that some of the stuff that you feel like you had to do actually ended up later on becoming an enjoyment for you? Oh, I love it. Like to this day, I have this Heinzmann piano that was the same as the one we had in our house. I got it from a lady who lived close to where I live now. I bought it from her and I loved it because the Heinzmann was the uh, grand piano in the 1800s. Now, nobody wants them. They give them away and it's too much work to learn how to read music. So a lot of them get all the technology, these pianos that have technology and they're good, I guess, but I'm old-fashioned, I just sit down and tinkle the ivories and away we go. <laughs> and uh, it gives me release. And if I hear a song and I really like it, I can play it by ear because I learned how to play it by ear as well because I had to. You know, there was no, if there wasn't a sheet of music or something, you gotta learn how to play it. So I, I think my whole life has been a series of have-tos, actually. <laughs> well, you know what? It's actually really interesting to hear, though, because I think, I mean, not that this necessarily is, but my mind kind of always is going when people are talking, like making applications to like how mm. things are now. But if you think about it, like lots has changed in the sense that oh, yeah. we don't foster those things anymore. Like we yeah. have become a society of if it's too hard or if it's uncomfortable for me mm -hmm. in regards to self-discipline, we often don't do it because we don't feel like I it. I was right? talking to a real estate agent a few months ago who has a whole bunch of pianos that nobody wants. So he offers to take them away if someone is selling their house because it costs money to get a proper transport mm -hmm. of a piano. And he has all these pianos. And I'm thinking, this is like gold. But you're right. Nobody looks at it that way. And actually, nobody has to do a whole lot of things right now because it's done for them. And if I was probably born now, I would be the same because that's the way you do it. Uh, but I insisted my whole family have a piano. I bought a piano for everybody. But I don't think they got, they got the vision of, <laughs> hey, you got to learn piano. Not when they have 842 other things to do, right, Kate? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, she, I told Kate today she had beautiful hands. She very oh, she well does. could have played yeah. the piano and done it well. Well, oh, I did try. You did, I did try. try. Okay. I wasn't great at it, but you taught me a little bit. A little bit. But yeah. you know what? 
you you are musical. Like I became a music teacher, I can sense it. I know you're very musical. Your mom is very musical, but that's a family thing. But everybody was too busy doing other things. Like I wasn't a sports star like you were at one time. Probably still are, but I know you don't have time for it now. But for me, it was just, you know, I played baseball because the baseball was there and it didn't cost very much. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a series of half tos. I should write a book. Yes, you should. Call my half tos. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we just birthed something new here. Joy coming at you is going to be writing a book called the series of half tos. <laughs> Not unless I have to. <laughs> well, you have to. We're telling you right now. You have to. So it's going to come out. Um, you did just tell me a story that I did not know about you which is that you released an entire album mm -hmm. of music. And I had never heard this before. And she's actually going to give me a copy. So I'm super excited because oh, I'll get to listen to it. Actually, but... there's two albums. There's two. Yeah. Okay. Well, one was done. <laughs> one was done in the year of the child when I was teaching music. I got my music degree and that was my first degree. And uh, I loved the kids. We had this choir and um, it was just the kids' little voices were unbelievable. And at that time, I was teaching um, the younger grades part-time, and then I was I mean, the music teacher. So I designed the program for this new school, and I just loved it. And the first one was In the Year of the Child, which was way back when. But um, In the Year of the Child, there was this trustee in our school division whose beautiful child had cancer. And so I had the idea of putting a record together from my school called The Year of the Child, and I still have a copy. And um, recently, about two years ago, I had one of the music students come and say, Mrs. Smith, can we get the choir together? Let's do another one. I'm thinking, oh, no, I can't do that. My life is too busy. <laughs> Write all those songs, oh, sure. Uh, but anyway, having said that, um, Glenn Zaretsky, a classical guitarist, and I wrote the songs and um, put them on the record. And the money from that record was given to uh, Jocelyn House because the trustee's daughter was named Jocelyn, this beautiful child. And she did pass away, but the parents uh, donated. The parents donated their whole house for children that were from rural Manitoba to come and stay so they didn't have to stay in the hospital. And Jocelyn House lives today. And I give the credit to the parents who had such a terrific loss, but they, I was so moved by their generosity and their love for their child and it was a little drop in the bucket we could do to help out a little bit so we did and I credit you know it was the St. Vitale School Division and the people there that agreed to let me do it and so we we did a lot with that record and uh, the kids really enjoyed it the choir loved it and they learned how to harmonize boy can they harmonize and uh, so that money went toward Jocelyn House, and Jocelyn House lives today. Yeah, for little children. So oh. we were really happy to do that. 
And it's not just me, though. It's the principal, Victoria Olchewicki, who was the principal at the time. It was the trustees. It was Alec Boys, the superintendent, who agreed because I couldn't have done it unless they agreed. All I had to do was help write the music, and Glenn Zareski was extremely talented, one of the most talented guitarists. He gave all his time for free. And so there's beautiful people in this world coming together as a community that makes something like this happen. So now you see Jocelyn House helping children. I think what, what I mean, I'm just blown away because I feel like just knowing these things just solidifies what I already know about you, which is that you have a gift that rallies people to a specific cause. It's like your passion is contagious and you utilize that to do a lot of good. Cause I think well, that's other, nice to know well, because no. half the time I'm feeling like I'm walking uphill, <laughs> but you know, I think there's something to be said and, and this is part of the reason why we wanted people to be able to see you in this way is that, you know, there's something beautiful about being able to see someone for who they really are and, and what drives them to do the things that they do, especially in such a positive way, because there are so few people that are like you in the sense that they've taken that drive, they've directed it in, in an avenue that actually affects the people around them in such a positive way. And so it's very but it's very I never thought of it that way it, well of course you wouldn't because we don't see ourselves that way but I think but you're getting two free records now <laughs> I can't I, wait to listen to after them. that the science 513 program wanted me to write uh, songs for little kids like I love little kids oh they're so little cute they're just so sweet and innocent and I remember science 513 like I love science science is my thing um, but the fact of the matter is, I remember they came and said, would you write some songs for our science program? And so we had to write songs, Glenn and I had to write songs that were in the kids' world. So we had one little guy, he was always sad about something. So we wrote the song, Emotions. And, you know, it started out, I, I remember the first day I put the record on for him to, because to, I used it in my own classroom. You can use it with your kids. They'll learn I their totally alphabet. <laughs> their, they'll learn all sorts of things. The alphabet, the vowels. Like with my grandson, Clarkie, I say, give me an A. He said, here's an A. And then, you know, we do the song that's on the record. Give me an E, you know, like kids are fun. Kids are fun. So anyway, this little guy was always melancholy. And I said, you don't have to be sad because he was sad over little things, whether he couldn't tie his shoelaces or he was just generally melancholy. So I wrote the song Emotions. And it starts out, there are times when I feel sad, when I'm all alone. And there's about two bars of that. And then boom it goes to really happy stuff and you can see this little guy jumping around and clapping and <laughs> you know and and you could see the effect that music had on their little minds they're so cute mm -hmm. 
music is so powerful. Like my 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 eldest, my daughter, whom you've met, yeah, and she just she loves you. Oh, she's gorgeous, but she loves music. Mm-hmm. So she's in band now. Nice, and she's playing trumpet. Oh, that's great! And she made the honor band for her school last year. There you year, go. And their slogan for the year was that something along the lines of music is a universal language it is and i thought like when you were talking i was like it's it's so true because Mm -hmm. music has a way of connecting us to things that we feel and don't always necessarily acknowledge but it also has a way of changing our mood too from you know sad it is yeah it's fun and kids learn through music a lot like my class did really well. I used that music all the time. I was just put it on and listen to it. And uh, Glenn Zaretsky was the true musician, though, because I had other things that I was interested in, mostly math and science. I really liked that. But anyway, um, I remember giving all the rights to Glenn because he was such an incredible musician. And um, we had Gem Records. We started Gem Records. So I gave everything to, to Glenn because he really, you know, that was his life. And to this day, he still does the same thing in such a beautiful way, making people's, I don't know about writing songs so much as entertaining and things like that. And those were the days of Fred Penner. Fred Penner's still around. He was a friend I of mine. I loved Fred yeah. Penner growing up. Yeah, and so, you know, I'm old now, but those were fun days, those little kids. But the one consistent is... I always love kids. I love kids so much, no matter how old they are. Mm-hmm. Spent most of my time, though, junior high, which is really, I loved them because they were a challenge. And as a teacher, I remember being, I'm five foot four. By the time you get to grade nine, they're about seven, <laughs> seven, ten. No, um, they're all taller than me, but not seven, ten. I was just joking. But, you know, they'd come in and they'd look at this little math teacher and science teacher, and they'd look at me and they'd think, hmm, I don't like math, I don't like science, and I don't like you. By the end of the day, we had that all straightened out. (laughs) Why does that not surprise me? It was so much fun with them, you know? And I remember in particular as a teacher, how they hated geometry, like who can hate geometry? It's all around us. And I'm telling you, so you know what I did? I baked up a bunch of gingerbread, um, and I brought the gingerbread in, and I had sheets of paper. They had to do, they had to make a village, and so we did obtuse angles, right angles. They learned the Pythagoras theorem. I wish I could pronounce it like I used to. Uh, all these things that they they hated, and the lowest mark in that class at exam time was ninety. And I remember, yeah, I remember so much. They loved that village. I brought in the icing. They decorated all the houses, the church, the community center. And the whole classroom by Christmas time was lit up. Grade nines. And they celebrated Christmas. And, you know, we just, you know, it's a little thing. You know, do you make their life miserable or do you have fun with them? I have a question for you. Hmm. Do you think there's any such thing as a bad student? No. 
Because it sounds there's not to me, a bad student. It sounds to me like you're just a really excellent teacher, and it brings no. out the best in in students. I tell you, I'm married to someone who really is a top teacher, and his science and He's everything is yeah. amazing. Um, I never looked at me myself as a as a top teacher. It, it's just I just love the kids, and I remember. We had special education kids in our school, and we had the gifted. Um, so we had two programs at that time. And I noticed the gifted kids were a little disdainful of the special education kids. So I started a deli to show them that they were too big for their pants. And so they did the, the financial end of it. <laughs> And we had a deli at the school where every noon we served sandwiches. And so the special ed, I was a resource teacher at this time, so we'd take the special ed kids out and we'd get the meat and we'd get everything and they loved that. And then the um, gifted kids would do all the finances. And when I had them intermix with making sandwiches, they discovered that the special ed kids were far above them, and they were teaching them how to make that sandwich decently because they weren't as detailed, you know. And so they got a respect for each other, and some of them became the best friends. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, it's just a matter of seeing a situation sometimes that ought not be and could be ugly mm-hmm. when it doesn't have to be. They're all kids. So it was written up in a magazine. I still have it somewhere. I'll find it. The teacher magazine about the deli, the special ed, and the um, the gifted class. So they were all gifted in their own ways. Yeah, all gifted. So you were obviously a very invested teacher. And I think this is kind of a good segue into how you got involved in what human trafficking is and how you first kind of found out about it. You had a student in your classroom and there were some red flags. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you started noticing and and how you kind of started piecing things together? Yes, I didn't know about human trafficking. I didn't know what it was or how it happened in Canada. But I remember one of my students, one of the smartest girls I've ever taught, she was smart. But she landed up on the streets of Winnipeg. It was toward the end of the school year and she never turned up. So I went looking for her and I found her. And she was uh, standing on Higgins. And I remember just talking to her saying, you know, you know, you can't do this because you're going to get hurt and what's going on here. And then I started, I didn't know how to get her to talk. So I started bringing sandwiches and coffee one one day a week, one afternoon. And the other girls started coming and talking to me and they were talking about their managers, that they couldn't leave the street because their managers wanted them to work. I mean, this kid, was underage. She was 15, for goodness sake. And it turned out that it was her mother that connected with this 
manager mm. to get her on the streets and she convinced the girl that if she did get pregnant she'd be able to get a free apartment and things like that i found out the whole story in due course but i kept going on the streets every week and i kept uh, that one day it was just one day i could go because i was teaching and i had kids at home but the sandwiches and the coffee worked because they knew that I loved them and a lot of them were hungry. Mm -hmm. But I started to find that there were people watching them. And so I said, who are you? Like, I mean, the managers would disappear if I went toward them and I didn't have sense enough to know that's not a good thing to do. You know, you just don't do that. You give coffee and sandwiches, but you don't confront. What I know now was the trafficker because the girls get beaten you know, if they talk to me and as long as they get sandwiches and coffee and he can hear the conversation, it's okay. But I started examining things when the kids started telling me about their managers and I started researching. And in my master's degree, I got the Headley Award for Excellence in Research because I love research. And so I did a good job of researching and I discovered this was human trafficking but everybody thought it happened abroad, not in Canada. And I was infuriated. So um, the internet, like everybody is so used to computers and the internet now, but when I taught, computers were new. I was fascinated by them. Uh, I tried to learn as much as I could, and being the science teacher, I was often in charge, knowing probably less than some of the kids did, but boy, I studied and learned the uh, the computer, they were quite archaic in that time. But I started to learn a lot about the capacity of the internet. And with the kids on the street, I started giving seminars about how to protect your kids from predators. And the girls, the word on the street was really good. They would find out where I was and they'd come and listen. And so I would talk to parents after school, you know, at parent uh, advisory councils or places like that. And sometimes it was open forums where they would invite the public. And so I'd let one or two know that I was there. And so they'd spread the word around. And a lot of them would come up. And they'd come up to me afterward. I just hung out for a while after everyone was gone. And they'd come up to me and they'd tell me their stories and I'd say to them, T call the police right now, I'll help you. And they'll say, no, Mrs. Smith, because we try that and we'll get killed or something will happen to our families. We can't do that. And if we go into court, the judge won't believe us anyway. And so it's just a horrible experience. And they told me the experiences that some of them did have going to court. And so it turned out they were re-victimized in the courts at that time. And the predator got off pretty well scot-free and they paid for it. So I said, well, what's going on here? In my research, I found out there were no laws in our country to stop human trafficking. It was a free-for-all on the kids. That infuriated me. So I announced to my husband that I was gonna run for office 
And he turned pale, but I guess uh, he realized there was no use saying anything else to me. He probably knew you well enough at that uh, point. He did, yeah, and he was very supportive. Anyway, um, so I ran provincially, but that wasn't the right place to run. I learned more. I had staff to do more research, uh, and it was very good. But I always wanted to be a principal of a school. That wasn't my intention to run for office. So when I found out I couldn't really do much at the provincial level at that time, it's different now, you can. But at that time, you couldn't. No one would listen to you, and the girls wouldn't come forward. And then I discovered in my research, it really was federal jurisdiction. That meant Ottawa. So I had to ask myself, I, I lost my provincial election by 68 votes. And so I was kind of happy because the school division wanted me back. And so I was on track to be a vice principal at that time. So um, I was quite happy until some people showed up and said to me on my doorstep, would you run for the federal election in Kildonan and St. Paul? And there were so many of them on my doorstep. And I thought, well, maybe this is God telling me that I need to redirect my efforts a little bit. I'm a woman of faith. I love the Lord, and I make no secret of that because he's saved my life on so many occasions and protected me. And But anyway, I thought about it, and I said, yes, I will run. But in this particular riding was a very strong liberal who was a very good man, and he'd held the riding for a very long time. So I walked in. And um, I know the party that I was running for said, you're probably not going to win. So I took that under advisement and did my own thing because no one would give me any support <laughs> anyway. So anyway, I won. And I was there for over 12 years. And during that time, passed two bills that made Canadian history. And I think that was, I give the credit to the survivors who so bravely came and gave their testimonies. And I... I give the thanks to God for allowing me to do that. But I learned many lessons during that time. So you grow in every job. I'm not a good politician. I never was. It was the issue. And, and you know, it's lonely leaving your house and going to live away for a week. And, and you lose connection with everything. And, but anyway, I did it because I felt I was called to do that. So I did it. And um, it wasn't the most pleasant experience. I remember we were in a minority government at that time, and there was another election two and a half years later. But during that time, I learned that question period was just theater, and everyone gets their zingers, and sometimes the media picks it up, blah, blah, blah. So you're a star for a nanosecond. But I did discover that the work gets done on committee. So I decided I was going to zero in on committee. So on our side of the house, I became chair of the status of women where all this stuff was talked about. And when I tried to explain to all parties that this was happening, everybody's eyes glazed over. And it was pretty rough. I think they looked at me as some sort of a 
lunatic who didn't know. And keep in mind that I did rescues for almost 10 years before I went to Parliament. I knew what I was talking about, and this was going to stop. So the first two years were very bad. I remember going to my office in Confederation Building and looking out over Ottawa thinking, what am I doing here? And I thought, this everybody here is stupid. They don't know what they're doing. And that was the wrong attitude because God taught me a very special lesson. So I went through a second um, election and won by a landslide. I was firmly in. So I went after this issue again. And I remember this one MP that she was new and she was from another party. So I convinced her that we had to uh, get a motion to study human trafficking. Now I know this is like drying paint and no, I to find it. this incredibly interesting. And nobody wanted to do that. And every time I brought it up, and we were in a minority government, I wasn't the chair of that committee at that time. But anyway, I kept bringing it up. Everybody was no, no, no. So I looked at the nature of the beast, and I was looking at the MPs, and I noticed they always went to the goody table. Be you know, and always were kind of late sitting in their seats uh, to start the committee meeting. They were always going to the committee table, talking to each other about the wonderful work they were doing and totally involved. So I launched a plan which got this new MP involved and got her because you needed a, I am a numbers person, you need a certain number of bums in the seats to pass the motion. So I got her all hot and bothered because she had written a book on prostitution and the drug trade. When I went to see her, I said, you know about human trafficking, don't you? And she said, yes, I do. So, I mean, this took a while to get it sorted out. But one day we walked into that room and I said, let's do it now. So anyway, we got the numbers. I made the motion, the chair tried to drag it out. I said, no, I made the motion. Everybody and the chair said, well, everybody in agreement, we passed it. Well, the ones who didn't want it, I don't know, there was enough at the goody table that it passed without <laughs> them sitting in the seat. So I had it. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you haven't already, please make sure to like, subscribe, follow us on our social channels, at Luma and Bloom Official and leave us a review where you can. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. We hope you had your own Luma moment.